and uh, a warm welcome. I don't know whether you've ever heard of the mystery worshipper, the mystery worshipper. Um, he or she is a real person. I've experienced it myself. Every Sunday in different churches, now in different countries, but it used to just be in the UK, uh, but in different churches uh, across the world, uh, somebody drops in, unknown to the congregation or to the minister, and uh, makes an assessment of the church. And then uh, they make the assessment, they write it down, and then they post it on a website. If you want to go and look at it, it's called the Ship of Fools. don't know why it's called Ship of Fools, but anyway. Uh, you can go to the website, you can Google a church there from, now these days, from Adelaide to Amsterdam, and you'll find that there are reports on various churches that have been visited and evaluated. Now, I looked just last week, and I don't see Park End there. You may have been visited in the distant past, but not in the recent past. Anyway, not yet, anyway. Maybe we will get a visit. You only know that you've had a visit when you come to count the offering, and uh, there's an official card from the uh, mystery worshiper telling you that you've been visited and that they'll be submitting the report, and then you wait a week or so, and if you want to, you can look it up on the website and see what they thought of you. Now, the report follows a set form uh, for every church. I think they're quite interesting questions. How many were in the congregation? Did anyone welcome you personally on arrival? What were the exact opening words of the service? What books were used? What musical instruments were played? How long was the sermon? On a scale of naught to ten, how good was the preacher? What part of the service was like being in heaven? What part was like being in the other place? What happened after the service finished? Did the service make you glad you were a Christian? And what one thing will you remember a week afterwards? Interesting questions, really, aren't they? As I said, I've experienced that myself in previous church. I wonder how we'd get reported if we had a mystery worshiper with us any of these Sundays. I'm sure many churches would have upped their game a bit if they'd known they were going to get a visit and then a public write-up of what the person thought. Well, why am I saying all this? Well, you know, today we've just read, Chris has just read to us, the first of the messages of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor, as it was called in his day, or present-day Turkey. So we've just read the most important assessment that any church can get, not from a human mystery worshiper, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What does he think of the church? And that's what our first church here, Ephesus, uh, is about. That's what the reading was about. And really, this, this uh, sort of report goes usually in these seven churches after a similar form. There's usually there's an introduction, there's a commendation from Jesus, then maybe there's a, a criticism or a rebuke, and then thirdly, there's a command to do something about it, and then a conclusion uh, urging us to, to listen, because if we do, then there's a promise. So I thought this morning, as before we come to the Lord's table, uh, we looked briefly about three or four Sundays ago at John's vision in, in Revelation 1, 
when he, he falls and worships the risen Lord Jesus. And now we're going on into Revelation 2 and 3 and look at the messages that Jesus brings to these churches. So here's the first one, Ephesus. First of all, in the place. Let's, let's look at it in its context because obviously in the first place, Jesus is speaking to that particular church. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe obviously that he speaks to us all at all times through his inspired word. But what about Ephesus itself? Well, it was a very influential city in the Roman Empire, quite a big city, about a quarter of a million. It was a very busy seaport, important city of learning and education, had one of the largest libraries in the then known world, kept in the library of Celsus, and uh, you can still visit the impressive ruins if you go to Ephesus these days. But mainly it was known for its greatest feature was the city, uh, was the temple to Diana in the city. Diana, goddess of the Ephesians, otherwise known in Greek as Artemis. She was the goddess who was worshipped by the Ephesian people as the giver of life. And uh, there was a magnificent temple built in her honor. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In fact, it was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. If you've ever been there, you'll get some idea of how big it was. It had a, a massive cult following. And so we know from Acts 19 that when the gospel came through Paul, there was a revolution, there was a riot. There literally was a riot in Acts 19 because of what uh, Paul said and brought the gospel of the Lord Jesus to them. And so a strong church had grown up in Ephesus. But by the time of John's writing here, that was about 40 years ago. And so no doubt some of those first converts, who, if you read Acts 19, uh, brought all their magic scrolls and their pagan fetishes and their worship idols and stuff, they brought them all, it says in Acts 19, to be burned publicly in a big bonfire, and that was part of it which caused the, the riot and the ups, in, in, the, in the city. But maybe that generation had now passed away. And maybe with their passing, the congregation had lost something of their initial passion for the gospel and for following Jesus. We don't know. But that's the situation now. Nevertheless, firstly, Jesus speaks very positively to them and to their church. So let's just think of that. That's the place, Ephesus. What about the positive, the message? Well, listen, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, you have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Well, that's pretty good going, isn't it? That's a fantastic commendation by Jesus on the life of this church. And there are two things in particular that Jesus warmly approves of here. Their perseverance and their purity. Notice what he said. They have persevered under great hardships for the sake of the name of Christ. They've not given up. They've worked hard for the gospel. And in that regard, they've shown a deep concern for the purity of the gospel. He says they can't tolerate the, the wicked, the false teachers who've claimed to be apostles but are not genuine. So their concern for the truth is exemplary and Jesus commends them for it. Their hard work, their perseverance is exemplary. 
But you see, hard work and even sound doctrine is there, but here's the but. Those things alone are not enough. Indeed, that's not what Jesus is primarily looking for, so we gather from this word. So thirdly, there's a, there's a problem. The place, the positives, yes, they're good, but the problem is this, verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So yes, Jesus, Jesus commends them on their works, but despite their perseverance and their purity, Jesus has this, this charge against them. Love, love is missing from their works. Their commendable works, their hard work, and their purity of doctrine, they're no substitute for the missing motivation of love for God, love for Jesus. And he says their love, it's not been lost so much as it's been left. You've left your first love. You've, you've drifted away from it. So the church in Ephesus had become all about their works, their activities, what they did. And of course, apart from the gospel and the love, that can lead to pride and a feeling of self-righteousness and of self-sufficiency. And when the heart of a church is busyness and works and doing and activity and not God's love, then there's a problem. Then love for Jesus suffers and love for others suffers. And all we're left with then is a, is a round of religious activity but no real relationship with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ at the very heart of it. That's the problem. Now we don't really know what had happened to the church in Ephesus but I think we only just need to think about Jesus himself in, in, in his parables. He talks about things that can draw us away from following him. Do you remember in Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the, of the different soils and the seed falling into the different soils. And there, he mentions four things at least that can pull us away, can distract us from following him. Four things. The first, he says, is trouble. He says, when troubles arise, that's what Jesus says, they've heard the word, they're following perhaps, but when troubles arise, trouble and discouragement. Oh yeah, that's, that's a device that the enemy uses so often to drag people away from spiritual priorities. We see it so often in the Christian life, don't we? We probably... Perhaps we know it ourselves in our own experience. When the trials of life cause a person to become discouraged or disappointed, he or she can then begin focusing more on those problems and those disappointments and take their eye off Jesus. Do you remember when Peter walked on the water? He was doing well until he took his eyes off Jesus. And he began looking at the waves beneath him and the winds around him and perhaps the clouds above him. And he began to sink. Trouble, trouble and discouragement. You see, it's so important for us, for you to know that when life's clouds grow dark, as they will, 
And when your trials and troubles become fierce and sometimes they seem almost overwhelming, that's the time to run to Jesus, not to run away from him. That's the time to press in. That's the time to follow closely. That's the time when you really need to know the reality of that love, that love relationship with the one who has said he will never let us go the love that will never let us go, whatever we're going through, whatever our troubles. And, of course, those troubles can come in many different ways, health problems, job issues, relationship difficulties, sadness, loss, lots of troubles. Jesus knows all about our troubles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus, no, not one. Then Jesus uses another word. He says persecution in that parable. Now, of course, we don't have outright persecution in this country. We're grateful for that. But nevertheless, we can face opposition. There can be trials and opposition for being a Christian, perhaps, for the stand you take on different issues, maybe in the workplace or in school or in college or even with your neighbors or even with your family members if they're particularly hostile to the, to the Christian faith. And so we have to face that question. Where does our first love lie? Is it with God and with Jesus Christ? Or is it with these other people that we meet day by day who challenge us? Persecution. And then Jesus says, there's the worries of this life. The worries of this life. Yes, our lives can be so full and so busy. Often busy with good things, not necessarily bad things, but subtly our busyness can dominate our lives and our schedules and our timetables so that time for Jesus, time for God, gets crowded out. And too often the good becomes the enemy of the best spiritually. So, if you're aware of the good taking the place of the best, of the most important, if you want to walk closer with God, but you're aware that things have been slipping for you, perhaps, then you have to take some action. You have to begin by taking a closer look at your calendar, perhaps, and your commitments. As someone has said, if, if you find you're too busy to pray, too busy to worship, too busy for church, then you're too busy. It's as simple as that. The worries of this life, they can overwhelm us. And then here's a big one, the fourth one Jesus mentions. He says, the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth. Notice he doesn't say wealth. There's nothing wrong in wealth or money in and of itself, but the deceitfulness of it. Why? Well, you see, because wealth and money deceive us into thinking that that's all we need. If we've got wealth, if we've got money, then we think we're safe. Wealth deceives us into this false sense of security. And so often we make wealth and comfort and fulfillment and success. They're the gods in our hearts, if we're really honest. And they can take the place of the king of heaven. We love the gifts rather than the giver. And of course we find at the end of the day that wealth 
doesn't meet our deepest needs anyway. Wealth cannot buy us forgiveness with God. Wealth can't give us peace and hope. Wealth can't find us eternal life. A theologian of the last century, Thomas Merton, famously said this. It's been said in many different ways since, but he said, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find, once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. It's true, isn't it? Wealth, success, fame, they don't meet our deepest needs. They're the wrong wall. We're made for greater more glorious things. But that's the deceitfulness of wealth and prosperity and success, which I think can be a particular temptation for us in the West, can't it? The love, the pursuit of it, it can lure us away subtly from the love of God. We begin to drift away from God, and inevitably we lose our our sense, our, our love for Christ and for commitment Other things or other people have a greater priority in our lives than God has. And the Bible calls that idolatry. That's the essence of sin. It's the breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Or as Jesus puts it, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And we fail. We can't do that. So what does Jesus say to us this morning? Jesus is talking to the church. Yes, in the first place to Ephesus. But what is Jesus saying to us at Park End? Remember, it's it's not the mystery worshipper that really matters, but Jesus, the Lord of the church and the Lord of each of our lives. What's he saying? He's been saying to me as I've been preparing this during this week and what's he saying to you as you hear these words how have you done in your journey with God over the past few weeks or months or maybe even years have you have you drifted away if you're honest has your love grown cold your sense of commitment well now's the time to return that's the good news here Jesus speaking to you today as he spoke to this church in Ephesus. Not words of condemnation. He's not here to beat us down, but words of grace. And here they are in in verse 5. Basically, Jesus says, remember, repent, and return. Do the first things again. Remember, repent, and return. And, you know, I think those three words, they're such wonderfully appropriate words as we come now to the communion table. Remember. Remember, yes, remember that the text says, remember how much you've drifted away. But as we come to the table, remember what Jesus has done for us. Remember that he has made this way possible for us to come back. And then repent. Be honest. Say sorry. Repent means being sorry enough to change and then return. Return. Return, first of all, to God, to Jesus, to the God who loves you and who's done everything possible to welcome you back. And then as you do that, yes, you'll return to his people and to church and to to other things and to, to activities, 
and to work and to learning about him. Yes, those are all great things, but at the heart, there must be this sense of love, of a relationship with the God who has loved us and has done everything possible to reconcile us to himself. So, as Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to you individually, to me. Let's remember, let's repent, and let's return.